This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. So send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to Publicly Radio. that's PubWKLY Radio on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with Afira Eisenberg, NPR host and author of the hilarious memoir, Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. Then PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley will join us for the first of our bi-monthly looks at interesting new books from independent publishers and university presses. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We've got an interesting new number one on the hardcover list. Last year, last year, last week, we were talking about Harlan Coben's book, right. uh, which is a, a thriller. And uh, this week, it's been knocked down by uh, J.R. Ward's Lover at Last, which is the 11th novel of the Black Dagger Brotherhood. It's its first week out, and it's right to number one. Wow. And this is her 11th. And how often does she publish? I think they come out about once a year. Yeah. These are paranormal romance novels. So they're all part of a series, but in each one you see a different pair of people, you know, characters who maybe have been around in the series for a long time, getting their chance at romance. And uh, this one, this this pairing's been long anticipated, but uh, this book started out as a novella, and from what I can see from the early reviews from fans, uh, not everyone's too happy with how Ward extended it into a novel. So I think people were, were really counting on this to be very exciting, because this particular uh, pairing of protagonists, mm -hmm. uh, Quinn and Blaylock, had uh, been been anticipated for a very long time. Right. And because of all that buildup, people are really, really interested and they already have this idea of how they want it to go. So people are still picking up the book, obviously, as you can see from it being on our bestseller list, but uh, they may not be entirely thrilled with how it's going. And when you hit number 11 in a series, there's so much to keep track of. So mm. many characters, right. so many subplots. So you'll, you'll win some and you'll lose some. And is this unusual for her or for her books to, uh, to uh, debut at number one? Or to oh, no, no. They've been bestsellers for quite a while now. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is, it's not quite a guaranteed spot, but she certainly has her fan base and right. they're, they're going to be out there lining up at midnight to, to buy the hardcover. Right. And uh, at number 15 on the hardcover list, we also had another novel. Uh, this is Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald by Therese Ann Fowler. And this is, uh, I thought, an interesting approach to the historical novel. I think a lot of historical fiction will, will put a fictional character front and center, and then they maybe have real historical characters make cameo appearances. But this one uh, takes F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald and puts them right front and center. I thought it was a, an unusual and interesting approach. And according to the Publishers Weekly Review, uh, it's quite successful. Yeah. They say, Fowler portrays a softer, more anxious Zelda who is lovable nonetheless, and her world is one of textured sensuality. Oh, wonderful. And, and looking at the uh, announced first printing, it uh, looks like they're, they're coming out with uh, proposing 150,000 copies, which uh, for listeners out there, that's, that's quite a bit. That's, uh, that's, they're, they're counting on lots of sales for this one. That's right. And seeing as it's number 15 on our list, it looks right. like those hopes are being borne out. Sure, yeah. And I did notice one other one, uh, and this is Leaving Everything uh, Most Loved by Jacqueline Winspear. And this one, we say in our review, broadens her, uh, her heroine's horizons while offering only routine sleuthing in her solid 10th uh, Macy Dobbs mystery. And this one is debuting at number seven, just mm -hmm. for another novel. So again, that's another, it looks like another series with a exactly. solid fan base. Right. If you liked the other ones, you'll like this one too, right. sort sure. of thing. Nonfiction. We have a book that uh, is debuting at number three. This is Chip Heath and Dan Heath. Decisive, how to make better choices in life and in work. Uh, this is from Crown Business. They say they tackle the problems of decision making and all the failures that come with it. Uh, what they recommend is this RAP model, W-R-A-P, mm -hmm. W meaning widen your options, 
R is reality. Test your assumptions. A is attain distance before deciding. And P is prepare to be wrong. And just looking at these, I'm thinking, wow, widening your options. That that sounds like even more of a, a problem with decision-making for those who have it. But Right. <laughs> that, can, that can lead to what they call choice paralysis, which is when, exactly. when you look at the menu and there are 40 different things and you can't figure out any of them whereas if someone said do you want the chicken or the fish right you have you can go oh well yep, i that guess was, i want the chicken that was my my thought exactly uh we say the writing is humorous and often surprising and a tool that the authors use to great effect when sharing such examples as, as uh david lee ross of van halen's obsession with brown m&ms he uh refused, that's right. yeah he wanted them uh he had it in his rider to have them taken out for every show but then he had fewer choices of he m&ms had fewer choices good <laughs> point oh my gosh <laughs> so, so I, I mean it sounds like they're just saying that, that you really need it's all about creating right. distance it's it's a you know, step back take more time think about it uh yeah. you know, try not to be emotionally involved yeah uh, which sounds like sound advice yeah, it's an, certainly an interesting approach I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We've been talking about next week's Publishers Weekly bestsellers, a little sneak peek for you. And I also wanted to share a letter from one of our listeners, John in South Carolina. John, thank you so much for writing in. It's always nice to get fan mail. And John writes, a friend asked me one day how I got so smart. He intended to ask how I knew so much, but people often mix up intelligence and knowledge. I asked him how much he reads, and he said he had read at least five books in his life. Mm. I explained that I read five books every month. He said, oh, nothing can educate a person like reading, but if you don't read, you don't know that. Would you please use your forum to explain this? (laughs) So I'm certainly happy to take a little direction from one of our listeners and talk about um, Mm. that, that paradox that John says, which is that if you don't read, you don't know how much reading can do for you. I think this is one of those things that starts very early on in life. Uh, there, there are whole uh, organizations, charities that are just devoted to getting parents to read to their kids, mm-hmm. uh, to, to starting their, their organizations for getting more books into schools because the reading habit really has to be instilled early on in life. Right. Otherwise, it's very, very hard to develop it in, in adulthood. And I think it's, it's important to make it uh, interesting for them uh, rather than uh, something that's tedious. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's another challenge, too, is, as you said, introducing it early on, uh, but then making it engaging. And, and even uh, I found by maybe not necessarily going, if you have a school-age uh, son or daughter, with what the school is suggesting kids read, but in ways kind of letting them pick out for themselves books by taking them to a library uh, or by going to a bookstore. Mm -hmm. And as for developing that habit in adulthood, uh, if there are listeners out there who are tuning into Publishers Weekly Radio and then thinking, well, this isn't all that useful to me because I don't read, it's never too late to start. The library is there for you. It's free. Uh, And don't let anybody tell you what you can or can't read or what you should or shouldn't read. If you read recipes and cookbooks, you're reading. Uh, that's a good point, Rose. Really is. Yeah, that's true. And and I think for some people, they, they feel, oh, I'm a slow reader. It takes me such a long time. Well, it may be nice just to take that time. And, and if you read just a few pages a night, then that's more than you've you know, probably been reading before. And I think that's just great too. That's actually the approach I've been taking to exercise recently. Uh, My girlfriend and I (laughs) were were sort of looking at our winter flab and thinking maybe it was time to turn some of it into muscle. And we we started forming these elaborate plans that we were going to go to a gym and we were going to go running every morning. And finally I said, look, why don't we just do five minutes every night? Because it's five minutes more than we've been doing before. And that way we have no excuse. We can find five minutes to, to, you know, lift a couple cans of soup or something. We don't have to leave the house we don't have to get fancy clothes we don't have to buy yoga mats you know we can we can just start working out and that's what we've been doing and it's actually it is really hard to convince yourself that you can't find five minutes for that it's true and and at the end as the saying goes they can't take that away from you you've done it and the same goes with reading Mm -hmm. and uh, i think just building up you know even gradually and finding Things that uh, that interest you. Absolutely, read comic books. I mean, yeah. read stuff that's fun. Read read great pulpy mysteries. Read romance novels. Uh, read children's books. There are wonderful books out there that are aimed at kids, mm-hmm. um, but are genuinely fun right. for for adults. I I remember one time I went into uh, a bookstore. 
and I was just kind of window shopping and somehow I wandered into the children's section and I came out with two enormous shopping bags <laughs> full didn't. of box sets, really? box sets of all of the, my favorite books from childhood. Cause they'd kind of, you know, right. I'd, I'd beat them up when I was a kid or right. whatever. I, I had you know, the, the Marguerite Henry Chincoteague books and I had, uh, you know, books by Edward Eager sure. and E. Nesbitt and you know, these wonderful English children's books right. that I'd grown up with because my grandparents would send them to me from England. Oh, and, yeah. um, and I still loved them. You know, Anne yeah. of Green Gables, these these books for kids and teens are really splendid. They're great storytelling. Uh, so and and you can you can read them at home. You can read them uh, with a with a brown paper wrapping on them if you don't want anyone you, to know right, that yeah. you're reading kids that's books true. or romance that's novels true. or whatever it is. Or or download it on the Kindle. Mm -hmm. That's true. Absolutely. If you have access to that, you can yeah. you can totally do that. And it, it really doesn't have to be a big investment. If you if you have an e-reader, then e-books are free. There right. are so many free books out there. Yeah, this is true. And, and you can often borrow classes. them from from the library too. Right. And yeah. um, and I expect people who are trying to build a habit of reading or just getting into the habit of reading probably don't have an e-reader. But if you have a smartphone, you can read e-books on it. I do that all the time. And nobody mm -hmm. knows. They think you're checking your email. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I think it really is possible to to start this, you know, a, a little bit a little bit at a time and get yourself into it or you know, develop the habit of reading to someone else or, sure. or read poetry. It's national poetry month. It's April. And, uh, what, what better time to get yourself a, a book of dirty limericks or something else that, that you think great. you're, you're going to love and, and just dive in. That sounds great. Now, uh, Rose, I, I, I've got the list here of books that are being published this week mm -hmm. and I am want, I, I kind of want to pick out a couple that I, Bet might be on our bestseller list next week or the week after. You think I should oh, try sure. that? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, here it is. It's All Good by Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh -huh. uh, this is a cookbook, health book written uh, along with her, uh, I think it's her her home cook dietitian, Julia Tertian. And this is from Grand Central Publishing. And looks like they're coming out with 200,000 copies. They're announcing that. So I think they're going to put a lot of advertising, a lot of marketing behind this. And I think that might make it on our list. Another one is uh, Duck, an autobiography by Dwight Gooden. Mm. Baseball season is, 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 is just starting. That's right. We had, we had opening day on April Fool's Day. No joke. Uh, right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, 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 Let's let's check next week to see uh, if I call them right. All right. I, so so, what do you want to say? You're not not necessarily calling that they're going to be in the number one spot, but no, top no, ten, no. top twenty. I want to say let's talk about the top fifteen. I'm going right in between the ten to the twenty. All right. So top fifteen. Tune in next week, everybody, to find out whether Mark's predictions are right. <laughs> We'll, we'll find out together. We'll find out. <laughs> It'll be an adventure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ophira Eisenberg is going to tell us how sleeping around led her to Mr. Wright. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Afira Eisenberg right here in the office. Uh, she's a stand-up comedian, the host of NPR's Ask Me Another trivia show, and the author of Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy, which just came out from Seal Press. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Usually when people get married, they want to leave their wild single years behind. How did you get the idea to turn yours into a memoir? Yeah, interesting. I wouldn't say it was a master plan at the beginning, mm -hmm. but definitely I've been uh, telling some of these stories on stage and people would get a real kick out of them and I realized I had a lot of them. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden it came to me, oh, and there was a happy ending because I actually met someone and I decided that uh, why not try to compile these all together into something with a happy ending. I didn't realize the story had to be told as much as it had to until I wrote it where people were like, I'm so happy that you aren't shameful about your past. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that was something I should do. <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't occur to you. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was doing fine. Mm -hmm. And you know, how, how grueling was all the research? <laughs> the research was ridiculous. Yeah, I do say that I approach things with the uh, detachment of a social scientist at times. That was my idea because I do have a cultural anthropology degree mm -hmm. and i like to say that the only, I, my subculture that i explored was uh dating basically right. guys 
But there was something to that. And I, I don't know. I didn't really, some people just know who they are. I didn't know who I was. And so I, I, my idea of thrill seeking, some people jump out of planes. I liked meeting people and talking with them. And that was my thrill. They're like, Hey, you want to walk down the street at midnight? Yes. Like that (laughs) sounded exciting to me. Mm -hmm. And Uh, did you use any kind of social media to, to meet these people? How did you go about meeting? Well, (laughs) this was a dark, dark, the dark ages before social media. Oh my God. I, I, uh, when I started dating my now husband, obviously we, there was some emailing, emailing really just ruined everything. (laughs) How was that? How was that? <laughs> I mean, actually, when I think about this book, by the way, I think about so many misunderstandings that took that happened in the book that would have never happened if it wasn't for email and mm-hmm. cell phones and immediate sort of right. communication devices. But when you don't have that, you could you would just wonder. You spent a lot of more. T- you spent more time wondering. On the other hand, you uh, you talk about running away from some particularly difficult guy and having to find change for a payphone call. So that that might have been a situation in which you would have been happy to have your cell phone. In That's your true. Purse. Yeah. That is true. When I'm That's like true. running down the streets, but then the story would have never happened. I just would have called someone. They picked me up. It's over. <laughs> Fair enough. So so less excitement. Uh, yeah, less, I guess I guess in both directions. Less, less stories, more safety. Right. <laughs> Uh, but I did a little online dating. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not very successful with it. I met Jonathan, my now husband, offline. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I like to say, it's not called real life anymore. It's called offline. Right. But we met in real life. Although we could have easily met. We were both dating online. It just didn't. And, and we did a little texting back and forth, but it was still new. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. It was still wow. new. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's hard. It's hard. I think it's harder to have a relationship now with that immediate uh, back and forth and the idea that at 2 a.m. with a couple drinks in you, you could, you know, there was one thing about drunk dialing. Right. right. You know, no one could hear you slur. Right. <laughs> when you... Drunk, drunk texting is <laughs> a little different. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. I'm Mark Rattel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Afira Eisenberg about her book, Screw Everyone. And... Uh, you were collecting data, you say, or at least in the uh, publicity material, and hopefully uh, to build your own Frankenmate. So, I mean, how did that turn out for you? And is your husband your Frankenmate? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah, I built him. I made him. <laughs> you made him. <laughs> but it's true uh, in the sense that looking back, I really feel like I did sort of gather a little uh, nugget from almost everyone that I was with that kind of informed who I was and what I liked mm-hmm. ultimately. Like I, you just, I learned things along the way and some of these were long-term relationships. Some of them were a few months, some of them were a few weeks, but some of them were years. Mm-hmm. And I just, everyone gave me like a little something, uh, you know, and some of them were sort of poetic. I remember this one boyfriend, I would be so frustrated with life and maybe even him. And he said, you know, this is how life works. There's a pain pleasure continuum in life and you have to sit there and weigh everything against this continuum when the pleasure outweighs the pain. Mm. I mean, when the pain outweighs the pleasure, that's how you know it's over. And I was like, oh my God, we are almost over. (laughs) So so you did the cost benefit analysis. Right, exactly. (laughs) You're you're running your your little sheets on everything. I never thought about approaching it that way. You know, um, I learned what I was not willing to put up with. I have this theory actually with online dating that all, we everyone writes these marketing documents about themselves to make them look amazing, right. right? You put up a beautiful picture of yourself or something that shows your best light. Wrong, 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 wrong. No matches are based on that. Zero. <laughs> matches are based on, in my mind, although this is not as romantic, people whose shit you can put up with the best. Yep. <laughs> That's a good point. That's yeah. what it's based on. I, I would absolutely concur. And yeah. I don't think I knew what I could put up with. I learned along the way. So I'd be like, okay, that guy, it's cool to like your parents and to have a good relationship with them. But if you are in love with them in a, a kind of a way that no one else will ever be able to insert themselves, I can't deal with that. Right. right. Uh, if you are mean to wait staff of any level... Yep. Absolutely. In, I'm, even if you think you're, they're doing it because, you know, people have a status thing. That, right. I, inexcusable. And also, if you collect things, that is a problem. I think I have a problem with collectors, even though I married a comic book nerd. But oh. if, if they get to the hoarders level, that's it. That's Hoard, it. Yeah, yeah, and people's collections ultimately are creepy. Mm-hmm. I like to say one or two of anything is adorable. But when you get into hundreds, it starts to get scary. Mm. So... uh I'm just lucky that my 4,000 book library didn't 
put off my partner. <laughs> Although I, yeah, like, right. Right, right. Books and CDs somehow. I think it's different objects. Like I have a t- story in there about uh, a g- going home with a guy who revealed to me a bedroom full of Garfields. Right. Like 300. Yes, that, that was, was that was off-putting. a little creepy to read. Ooh, I, like I've read horror stories. Right, like, right, right, they're exactly. all staring at you. Right. They exactly. all have their big eyes, right. big googly yep, eyes. Yep. Yeah. Although at the time when seeing that, I was like, you know, because I have an open mind and that's sort of what drives the book. I was like, well... You know, maybe if this works out, our kids could play with them. Like, who knows? There could be an upshot. Well, but not not if not if that collection is full of very precious Garfields that the kids are never allowed. Right, to Right, exactly. Right. Glassed in Garfields. Oh yeah, that's that's a that's a danger <laughs> sign for sure. Yeah, or like superheroes figures still in their boxes. Yes. So yeah. I yeah. I basically almost married that guy. We're not allowed to do superheroes or action figures of any kind. That is where I draw the line. Oh, but right, it is wall to wall comic books. <laughs> That we are whittling down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we. <laughs> yeah, we are whittling down. Right. What happened to those books? I don't know. <laughs> so it sounds a little bit, to, to take a slightly different tack, uh, as I was reading through the book, I felt like you had this very complex relationship with feminism. So on the one hand, you, you bristled about being called a comedienne. Yes. And on the other hand, uh, you wrote about seeing stories in men's magazines like Playboy as these narratives of female sexual empowerment. Correct. Rather than women being debased. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, again, uh, I, I will admit that I'm, whatever you want to think about this, true or false, it is true. I'm not a porn consumer now, and I actually kind of got it out of my system working in a <laughs> grocery store going through magazines when I was a teenager like maybe I, I just only imagine my quota so right. I don't know what the <laughs> pictures and everything look like specifically right now as opposed to how they did maybe in the uh, you know 80s it was a little lighter but I did not see it I don't remember I feel like maybe those pictures were different maybe the storylines were different but I do not remember it looking like exploitation of course exploitation these women are in porn that right. is there's a level of exploitation there but the actual scenes that were being depicted and uh, the fact that there was narratives i think is nice they tried to have a plot mm-hmm. uh which is an intellectual side uh were the it seemed like the woman was in the lead it seems like she was in control and was making choices and then she would choose to be with that strapping man with the abs right that walked in and who wouldn't and who wouldn't, I suppose. Depends. Was he nice? Right. Uh, was he nice to waiters? <laughs> right. Did he have a collection of teddy bears? <laughs> Did he have a collection? And I just remember that was the most, uh, like that was the, obviously my first idea of anything that was like the ultra side of sex, right? That was the porn side. Mm-hmm. Bizarre. A lot. Again, this is before the internet when finding and having access to porn was different i don't i think i was the only one of my girlfriends who actually saw this stuff right because they're not going to go into a store and buy it right as teenagers i i don't know i feel like my feminist angle is that you um you have to make your own choices and there's on one level i keep going if this story was from the point of view of a man no one would care right no one would care how many people they slept with no one would care which to my benefit, the fact that people do care means I'm able to write a book about it that might sell copies. Mm-hmm. So that is like which a is positive. always nice for an author. Which, right, which is right. always nice. But the funny thing is, is that, the, the, you know, if a guy wrote it, no one would buy this book. It's very weird. And I keep going, I didn't even realize till recently that slut was a bad word. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I thought it was fine. <laughs> I thought we were over that. I keep having this bizarre concept that we live in the future. Right. <laughs> You know, because I wasn't unraveled. I never got a disease. I never had a pregnancy scare. Like, I knew how to do this. Right. I, I, I didn't know that was an anomaly. Mm-hmm. And I get it. There's like the, you know, what are women? Is Are you the virgin or the whore? And I'm talking about this person in between mm-hmm. that takes care of her bodies in charge of her decisions and works her way through life. And I, for some reason, society has found that person threatening. Well, can't imagine why that would be. <laughs> <laughs> but it, no, but it does it does seem to sort of undermine all of these narratives and it's real independence. It's genuine self-directed moving through life. Yeah, it freaks people out the mm-hmm. fact that you could actually be slutty and yet not falling apart. Right. And not doomed to misery like you know, you still even even from that perspective you you have as you said the happy ending. Yes. And <laughs> I I will say too I mean I'm not going to ask you your number but this idea of the numbers how many people have you slept with keeps coming up and I find this endlessly interesting. 
keeps coming up with people who one has who you might have dated, gone out with. Just or... the dialogue when I tell these stories, uh, right, people are right. like, "Oh, so how did so your how husband many? react with the number? Like, what did right. you think of oh, your number? Right, what did right. you think of someone else's number?" I'm like, I, "Like, you have to like someone. Isn't that hard enough? Who cares what their <laughs> right, number right, is? Right. <laughs> right. Like that is so low on my list of requirements." <laughs> and you, you talked about um, finding finding a file where he had he had listed all of the women oh. that he'd, he'd been with, and, and at the end you say, "Well, you know, so it was fifty four. That's better than four. Yes. And, and that's that. that I, I looked at that. I thought, "Wow, that's that's not something you see in print very often." Someone saying, "Well, I'd rather he'd had." more experience than less well wouldn't i mean do you want to be with someone that you look at and you go oh my god are you going to leave me one day because you just didn't get it out of your system mm-hmm. yeah right i mean right. that's what i think i had to get a lot out of my system <laughs> i mean i kind of was like uh let's walk on fire <laughs> right. because i want to never have to walk on fire later right. but that was my yeah. point of view and i think it's right <laughs> no right. i think it is a possible point of view is my point right I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Ophira Eisenberg about her new memoir, Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. And you mentioned that several men that you dated or slept with or both didn't make it into the book. So how did you decide <laughs> who made the cut? Uh, it's pretty easy. Basically, just, it, I mean, this is all about comedy. So right. there's, it, uh, even though tragedy is very funny, obviously tragedy <laughs> is the uh, happiness isn't very funny. Right, right. <laughs> so, but I, I was looking for stories, A, that fit a story structure beginning middle and end like not everything was worthy of that structure just as from the writing point of view mm-hmm. and two like sometimes it was just a little you know it was a little slice of life like something happened uh but it really didn't land on the richter scale mm-hmm. and i guess i was lucky enough to have a wealth of material so <laughs> you certainly did it seems <laughs> so i could pick and choose a little right. bit and uh, there are a couple of the ones that were just a little bit more sad i thought there was no point right yeah just when you're like really like that guy and then we screwed around and then he didn't really like me all right (laughs) yeah that doesn't sound like it quite fits in a in a comedy book yeah or oh we met and then just kind of decided that we would not hang out Ah, all right yeah Yeah, so i went for the other ones yeah but it sounds like in some ways those might be some of your wiser decisions too so so some of the some of the comedy here is Based on your own mistakes. That's right. When you uh, when you walk through the door that there was the right door, nobody cares. Right. <laughs> right. And how is being a comedian on stage different from on page? Yeah, it was. I mean, really different. I, uh, if you're familiar with the Moth Storytelling Organization, mm-hmm. yeah. where I had a chance to put a lot of these pieces and you know uh, on stage, and then I do sometimes the stand up stage, but stand up stage I have to do a more condensed version mm-hmm. just to pick up the laughs for the attention of the audience. So it's interesting because you can get away with so much with the inflection of your voice or a tone or the way you say something. And I started with that and then went to the book. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was a lot of rewriting. And you don't want, for comedy's sake, you don't want to depend on punctuation for your timing. Right. So it was a lot of, when it came down to the jokes, I had to really think hard. Some of them just had to be taken out. Mm -hmm. They did not work on the page. And some of them just had to be reworked, so they were—they just live, live very different in that book. So I'm sorry, you're saying so you you performed some of these? Yes, f- or, or most of them first. I would say about half of them. Really? Yeah, yeah, because that's how I—I I mean, I would jot down, yeah. I would write them up, but I would write them in the most sort of raw, colloquial, kind of conversational way, and then I would try them on stage, often many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, and then the book came after that. I was actually approached from, by an agent, a literary agent, after she saw me on stage at the Moth. Hmm. Oh wow! And she asked me, you know, do you have something here? And and we put the shape of the book together, together, mm-hmm. together, <laughs> together, together. But yeah, that was a one M dashes, right? That I had to stop. I was the M dash queen in the beginning of writing this book because <laughs> sure. that's like a timing thing. Sure, You're like sure. pause. Yeah. You know, it's like I wanted to write music half the time, use the music notations to donate rhythm. That you would would need something between punctuation and and percussion. It's really, I I found it really difficult. I really wanted to uh, create new punctuation. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. carrots. I thought maybe we could have some carrots thrown in there. Sure. Uh, And you don't want to write everything in a towel. Like you really have to, because if that's overdone, all caps, we all know what it's like reading that stuff. It feels very put on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of it was like, guess what? You're rewriting or just creating brand new jokes that work on the page. 
And is this something uh, that you would recommend to other authors to try things out in front of a live audience before writing them down? For me, I found it the most useful thing because when I'm writing, I can't hear when my reader is bored. Mm -hmm. But when I have something on stage and I'm going into some description that I think is really important or walking down part of a story that I think adds something to it, and all of a sudden you hear like the shuffling in the audience or you hear you the see silverware. The come on <laughs> you see from, the silverware. From phones. Like, yeah. You just you <laughs> right. feel that energy of like, oh, you know what? Nobody cares about this and it has really nothing to do with the story. So, and then, you know, you just take it out. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was, and you, you just hear naturally too. You go, oh, and here's a joke. And if it doesn't land, you go, yeah, that, you know, that isn't worth it. Or, or anything that's not clear, I feel just is, is blaring at you. The feedback is so immediate. Now, when you're writing your skits for a stage, are you thinking, well, this could possibly go into a book sometime <laughs> and you start tailoring it differently? Or, or do you really still listen to your audience? Yeah, I mean, the, you can't screw around with an audience. Yeah. They will, they will, uh, they have no patience yeah. for you to, uh, yeah, it's it just, I feel like they're different muscles. They are very different muscles that you have to, and there's a lot of um, overlap, right. but you have to figure out what you're doing, where, and I'm, my stage, I mean, I've been working on stage for a long time, thankfully, so I feel like that is the, my comfort zone, and this was definitely put me really, like, challenged, yeah. and I was happy for the challenge, but it was a challenge. Is there something about the impermanence of stage versus the permanence of a book? No kidding. Yeah. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Because, right, so you do this, you do the best version of one of those stories on stage for a crowd. We, we could even make that crowd a thousand people, whatever you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, it's just over. Mm. And people remember little slices, whatever, and you remember little slices, but the idea of then you do it the next time and maybe the next time it doesn't work. And right. then, it's, you know, you're like, what happened that time when I had it all right? So this is uh, it is nice. There is something nice about an object that you're like, look at this. Sure, sure. And of course, when it's on a Kindle, people have to hold up something different. Look, right. at, look at this. <laughs> look at this. Look, there's a line item. And you also host a show on NPR, Ask Me Another. So yes. tell us a little bit about it's, that. This is a it's a trivia. It's a new trivia word game puzzle show. Uh, it diff it's sort of like a raucous pub trivia night, mm -hmm. um, but the kind of a well-produced version of that. So you might be familiar with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, this, this show is, you know, in that same zone of fun, but it's a little bit different. We have a house musician, Jonathan Colton, who plays live music throughout the show. And he also, uh, we have quizzes where a music game, so he will play, which is incredible. We have live contestants, so we actually have people that apply ahead of time to be contestants, and they are on stage playing these games. And where's the stage? This, we tape it live at the Bell House in Brooklyn, in hmm. Gowanus, Brooklyn. Really? Yeah. Oh, so we tape it every week, and then we have one special guest per show mm -hmm. that I interview, and then our puzzle writers write a customized game for them. So we've had everyone from, like, Dr. Ruth, uh, Dan Kennedy, whose new novel is just coming out, American Spirit. We're just in Boston. I interviewed Barney Frank. Wow. wow. And then his game, just for sake of our, his game was pretty great. We, uh, we took, he's obviously so quotable. He's said mm -hmm. amazing, hilarious, witty quotes. So we interspersed his quotes between quotes um, said by Michelle Bachman mm. and, Con <laughs> and Kanye West. Right. Oh, great. And so we read a quote, and he had to decide if it was him, oh. Michelle Bachman, <laughs> or Kanye West. Oh, so wonderful. how many did he get right? He got them all right. Oh, okay. He got them all right. <laughs> that's a relief. So that's how you know he writes his own material. Yeah, exactly. And there was a couple that he was like, it sounds like Kanye West, but I'm going to go with Michelle Bachman. And we are like, you were right. right. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. So yeah. yeah, it's a really it's a really fun show, and you know a lot of places are playing it. So we hope that it you know just keeps building audience. Fantastic. Well, we've been talking with Ophira Eisenberg, and you can find her memoir "Screw Everyone: Sleeping My Way to Monogamy" in stores right now. Ophira, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley will join us for our first bi-monthly review of interesting books from independent publishers and university presses. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, Reviews Editor Alex Crowley is here with us to discuss some intriguing new titles from university presses and independent publishers. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thank you for having me. Very glad to have you here. So tell us a little bit about uh, the work you do at PW and why you see these uh, unusual independent books. Well, I run the what we call the Web Annex, uh, which is basically our online reviews. It's books that don't fit into our normal magazine schedule mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason, um, things that show up late to our office. And a lot of times that has to do with limited budgets. And, and so university presses generally fit into that. A lot of independent presses, small presses fit into that as well. So, and I'm sure probably not, you know, not universal uh, publishing uh, timelines, you know, for the trade. So they probably has their own have their own publishing yeah, timelines for books. They do, and um, so they usually show up a month or two of uh, their their pub date. So they tend to come directly to me, and then uh, so you know it gives a different avenue of uh, of coverage that the magazine can't can't provide. Mm-hmm. But it's good because we get to cover a lot of fun stuff. And so that's what I get to. And you're also a poet. I am also a poet. And I bet some of the books that might be of interest, perhaps, that might come to you that you might pick up might be poetry-related? They are. I don't see a lot of uh, general poetry because that goes straight to our poetry editor. But there are a lot of presses out there that are doing, you know, hybrid work. Right. And uh, I have a few things here from people who who are otherwise poets who are dabbling in hybrid fiction. So I wanted to... Start off with uh, Tarpaulin Sky Press, which is a small press out of uh, Grafton, Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been around for a little while, um, I'm not sure, you know, a few years, and they were uh, almost totally devastated, wiped out in uh, 2011 when Hurricane Irene came through. Mm-hmm. Missed us here in the city, but it, you know, but it was ruined, terrible, terrible up there, and it like ruined uh, so much of their of what they had going on. But they have a few really fantastic books out uh, this May. And the first one is a, a, a debut sort of short novel novella by uh, local Brooklyn author Claire Donato. Mm-hmm. It's a really fascinating, poetic, let's say, meditation on grief and death. It's called Burial. Mm-hmm. And for those who know the work of, uh, say, like Clarice Lispector who's sort of come back into prominence uh, recently thanks to uh, New Directions. Anyone who's into that work, you know, it's, it's sort of ambient. It's not plot-driven, but it plays a lot with language and with mood. Um, and so it's for people who are into that, it's you know, almost... And you just mentioned New Directions. Uh, we, should, we, you know, we should explain New Directions is another small press yeah. known for the literary works, known for uh, perhaps publishing poems, and also a lot of books in translation. translation. Yeah. So. yeah, and they're always doing fascinating stuff. Right. Um, so that's uh, Claire Donato's uh, Burial. Highly recommend, and that will be out in May. Uh, the two other titles are sort of intriguing husband and wife team. Joyelle McSweeney and, if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Johannes Jorensen, mm-hmm. who, for people who know the, the literary blog Montevideo, they are the, the folks behind that. They, they teach at University of Notre Dame, and for such a sort of conservative institution, they're fairly radical in their um, politics and in their literary work. Descri- well, could you tell us a, a bit about the titles? McSweeney's is Salamandrine mm-hmm. Eight Gothics, and mm-hmm. how to describe this other than a sort of bizarre mix of uh, poetic prose. Um, she is sort of well-known in some circles for writing a, a manifesto of sorts called uh, about a playground. And, you know, it's obviously a play on playground, but the plague ground being uh, the realm in which everything is sort of mixing with one another and people are finding and picking out the sort of intriguing bits and rearranging them. And that's, that's a sort of aesthetic that both uh, she and Jorensen are noted for. Jorensen's book is called Haute Surveillance. And his, his work is a lot more, uh, I guess, theatrical in its tone. But the, the two of them, they, they do a lot of work promoting other authors and they 
they're they're but they like to toy with form and they like to toy with language a lot. Mm. Jorensen is Swedish and but he writes a lot in both and he does a lot of translations of Swedish poets and it's quite interesting work. Um so you know the language play is always there. I'm Mark Rotellin. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley about university presses and other small presses. What other presses do you have uh, here? Actually, before you go into that, I had a question for Alex about these poetry books because mm-hmm. it's National Poetry Month and I know a lot of people are getting into poetry, mm-hmm. uh, maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long while. Would you say these books are accessible to the casual reader or do you really need a grounding in poetry to get into them? I don't think you need a grounding in poetry. More than anything else, I think you need an appreciation for language play and in uh, ways that authors are using language in unconventional ways. We're, we're used to thinking of language as a means, means of communication, and it's really straightforward if you think of the you know, Orwellian clear as a window pane. Um, these are not like that, but it's fun. It's play with sounds. It's playing with like double meanings, triple meanings, and using language in ways that is unexpected in, in a way that um, listening to music doesn't convey straightforward meaning or looking at abstract painting doesn't. Interesting. Yeah. So what else do you have for um, us? Something that's interesting about the, the Tarpaulin Sky books are cool because they're kind of small. Not quite pocket size, but almost. And I, I, I kind of have an affinity for that stuff. Another great uh, small press, Tiny Hardcore, uh, which is run by Roxanne Gay. And there's somewhere in Illinois, I think she runs it from. But she's just put out a book. They put out maybe one or two books a year. Mother Ghost by Casey Hannon which we just gave a starred review to. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been hearing about this, it's, actually. It's really, really cool. It's so, it, it reads as if it's a memoir-ish, um, but it's not really. It's about a young man named Pith who is coming out in a very conservative um, mm-hmm. environment, and there's a lot of surreal, I don't know, nature play happening. But again, it's it's... It's the language play that is really, really, really enjoyable. And the language is incredibly poetic. And this is uh, probably a little bit more plot-driven than, say, um, Donato's Burial. But it's a, a fascinating work. And it's, I think he's also, Casey's a debut author as well, I think. And when, when they talk about, you know, a, when you're saying a pocket-sized book, that I'm seeing you holding it here, it's, it really is something really you can fit in your back pocket. Yeah, it's it's great. And, you know especially in the city here, you just put it in your pocket and get mm-hmm. on the subway and, and ride. <laughs> I, I remember those old days when the paperback, when pocket paperbacks were actually, could actually fit in your oh yeah. back pocket. And now the best way for me to describe this for our listeners is to say it's a little smaller than an iPad mini. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how, how times have changed. Yeah, exactly. that we, we would used to say you know, the iPad mini is a little bigger than a small paperback book. And, yeah, and now things are flipped around. Mm-hmm. So, Alex, it looks like you also deal with a lot with university presses. And in your mind, which are the ones that are that are publishing that, that you've been seeing with with some interesting books coming out? Um, right now, the 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 most interesting and in, and in, for university presses accessible to the general public, um, University of Chicago and MIT of all places. Mm. Um, so you you tend to think of those as high-minded theoretical institutions and um but mit has been has a great has been doing a great series on uh with art books um i don't have these ones with me but they did a uh, a volume on abstraction they've been doing a a catalog on documentary and all sorts of things and most of those came out in like february or march so they should be available now Mm -hmm. um just collections of of uh, theoretical works, but for sort of lay, more lay audiences so that you can, you know, pick them up and you're like, oh, I'm interested in documentary films. What else is going on in that world? Or I like abstract painting. What else is going on in that world that I didn't know about? And they're, they're beautifully done and they've gotten great uh, response from people that have read them. Um, and here I have a couple new ones. One is Illa Reza Norbach's uh, Robot Futures, which is exactly what you'd think of it's how ro- uh, robotics is going to transform, you know, both uh, industry and social life and the economy mm-hmm. um, and just the changes that are going to take place in there. And then we also have uh, Greg Kostikian's uncertainty in games, which as you know, gamer culture starts to take over 
it's important to understand sort of the theoretical underpinnings of those. But here, you know, his claim is he's a, he's a game designer um, right. as well as an author, and he posits that what makes games so interesting is the how much uncertainty is you know sort of slotted into mm-hmm. the gameplay. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's video games or board games or whatever. And these books, I, I mean, they seem, they do seem kind of theoretical. They do, mm-hmm. but but they but are they accessible to say the general reader? Do you think? I think for the most part, and you know, even if um, someone, especially the, the uncertainty in games, given the number of people that I know personally that are more into video games now, you know, th- their video games now have like, you know, storyboard like extensive like, as much or more than in movies or novels or anything like that. It's we a, were talking about this a bit last week when we were mm-hmm. talking about how you can write tie-in novels to video games now because they were there are the Halo novels and one yeah. of which hit our bestseller list. And they're getting novelists to come in and work on video games to help them plot and like. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's yeah. so it's the, the the interplay between those worlds is is getting blurred more and more. So that's some cool stuff. And for anyone who's interested in, in game, that's a that's a cool one. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley about some interesting books that are coming out from university presses. And he says you know, these may sound like egghead books. If you if you think a university press, you may think a book that you're going to read in university. But he says they're very accessible to lay audiences. So what else do you have? And from the uh, University of Chicago, um, I got two right here. I'll start with uh, Barbara King's How Animals Grieve. They've had a, a whole bunch of uh, books on, um, I guess, animals in different forms. They, a, they had a book on uh, swordfish, and they have a book on jellyfish and the ecology. This one is on grieving. You know, it's a more universal animal uh, sort of characteristic than, than we sort of take for granted. Mm-hmm. So in itself, that's a kind of fascinating topic. Um, but this one here, and in general, we've been seeing books. Uh, I think on uh, animal behavior, it's becoming more and more popular. I've seen in our general nonfiction uh, reviews. It's true, and it's I, I think because people want to know more about how humans and in an, non-human animals, what behaviors do they share? What do we see reflected in things that aren't like us, yeah, but right. are are actually like us? And then. Um, you know, speaking of sort of animal behavior, we have Thane Rosenbaum's Payback, The Case for Revenge, an incredibly fascinating book. We have actually a, a, a Q&A with the author uh, forthcoming uh, that will be on the web. But here, Rosenbaum says that our justice system is sort of framed in, in a way that's objective and removes emotion from what is otherwise, uh, or takes the place of emotion and so we all feel like mm-hmm. when, uh, say, I don't know, the end of a court case, uh, some prominent ones, we, we feel like just like, why do we feel that justice has been served or hasn't been served? And, mm-hmm. and we can't, you know, revenge has become this taboo uh, when really other things have just sort of substituted for them. And he, he advocates uh, bringing emotion back into the courtroom mm-hmm. because it'll be beneficial for you know, prosecutors, judges, and people, defense, juries, everyone. So that's interesting because we tend to think of emotion as being opposed to rationality. Mm-hmm. Right. The idea is that if you get caught up in emotion, you might convict somebody who's innocent because you're emotionally so certain, so convinced that they did it, that all the facts in the world won't sway you. Exactly. So, so he seems to be taking the opposite tack. He, well, he, he's positing that justice and revenge are sort of the the Janus face. We 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 only tend to look at the the face of justice and not realizing that the the other side of that coin is revenge. We we will see uh justice done when an adequate substitute for revenge has been implemented. Hmm. But we when the balance is skewed, you know, we say, Oh, justice hasn't been served or, or such as a jail like sentence which which uh he, does does he consider that a form of revenge or revenge? um well he he posits you know they're all different forms of punishment but we don't see, tend to see them as we don't even see like a jail term as revenge but in in its at its core you know removing someone from society for an extended period of time mm-hmm. is its own form of revenge we are social animals and taking people out of society is mm-hmm. a way of of is a means of punishment but we you know 
we tend to look at it from the rational standpoint and say, oh, we can't have emotion in here, but our emotions are still at play. We're just ignoring them. Right. Um, so we want to you know, make it more explicit that like we're considering all the facets here. So it's very controversial, but. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Reviews editor Alex Crowley about some interesting books coming out of university presses for lay readers. So what else do you have there on your stack? The last thing is um, going back to you know small press. We got a couple things from McSweeney's you know, for National Poetry Month. They have two collections, sort of anthologies, about poetry. One is called The Strangest of Theaters. And it's poets writing across borders, so it's all about translation and sort of traveling to get new perspectives on your environment or language and things like that. And then they also have Open the Door, which is how to excite young people about poetry. Oh, wow. And it's, uh, it's going to be great for both educators, people who teach poetry, and also you know anyone who writes. It's full of exercises and essays on, on the process. Right. So are they talking about how to get kids excited about writing poetry or reading poetry or both all of the above all of the above yeah the more people <laughs> uh, the more the more the better i mean really the children start out hearing nursery rhymes they we start them out with poetry with little nonsense songs and mm. little bits of verse and then somewhere along the way we get this idea that poetry is some highfalutin thing mm-hmm. and not accessible to kids so yeah. it's wonderful to see something like this it that def- says no poetry is for everybody exactly agreed yeah well, and tell us a little bit about McSweeney's, the the history of McSweeney's. I mean, that's a it's a pretty literary magazine, also publishing company. Yeah, they they they've been uh, putting a few books out, you know, the past few years. Um, they have been around for a while. Dave Eggers started out in San Francisco, I believe. I'm not too clear on on their history, but they do they do do a lot of work with sort of outside the mainstream authors and so these two books in particular are full of both established names in poetry mm-hmm. as well as sort of up-and-comers and so it's giving giving people uh, a new space which is always appreciated well alex thank you so much we're looking forward to having you back in june for the next installment of our bi-monthly series on books from independent presses and university presses thank you very much for having me thanks alex all right it's been great and that's it for today's show i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella <laughs> And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.